In this series of eight shiurim, I've attempted to demonstrate the psukim, which Chazal selected to introduce their teaching of the Megillah. The Gemara in Megillah, Daf Yud, Daf Yiralif, cites various psukim with which Chazal began their teaching, not psukim from Megillah's Esther, but from other parts of Tanakh. And the Medrash cites even additional ones which don't appear in the Gemara. How these psukim were carefully associated with the teaching of Megillah's Esther, to help Chazal illuminate hidden themes of Megillah Sester and of the Nasif Purim. Beyond the more popular, more spoken about themes, obviously of salvation from genocide, Lahashmid, Laharabuliabed, obviously the hidden hand of Hashem, Hester, Esther, behind the scenes, obviously the role of Tefillah and of Tshuva. Obviously, the role of reaffirming our commitment to Torah in miniature, Har Sinai, Kimu V'Kiblu HaYehudim. Those are the obvious themes of the Megillah. But I've tried to draw attention to the more subtle themes. Primarily, the culture clash. That there were certain cultural challenges facing the Jewish people, based largely on Shimon Bar Yochai's students asserting that they were punished and threatened because they partook of Achashverosh's Seuda, and the Seuda is not just a meal, but a cultural icon and a cultural anchor, and the fact that they're so deeply part of the culture. What exactly were the, so to speak, positive elements of the culture of Paras, and what were the challenges? I've tried to speak about the the recognition that this was a template for future Golos, and that some of the crisis moments which had been resolved would be resolved in a similar fashion, and they face similar enemies. I've also tried to highlight the historical context surrounding Megillus Esther, and it's so hard because we read Megillus Esther literally in a bubble, in a vacuum, as one of the five Megillus, but if you pitch it in the context of the return to Eretz Yisrael, the end somewhere towards the end of the 70-year period in Bavel, the Besamikdash's foundations had already been laid, but there was a lot of opposition in Israel. And soon thereafter, it's unclear how soon after the Nasif Purim, there would once again be a second movement towards Israel with Ezra and a final rebuilding of the Besamikdash. The sense that this Torah Misrael, that even in Galus HaKadosh Baruch Hu was there for them and would not reveal, revoke their covenant. Well, tonight's Shir discusses two psukim which pivot directly on that historical issue. The first Pasuk is a Pasuk selected by Ravdimi Bar Yitzchak. Ravdimi Bar Yitzchak, the Gemara in Megillah says, Pasuk le'pischalahai He would teach Megillah's Esther by citing a Pasuk in Ezra, Perektes. In the midst of his confessional, as they've returned to Yerushalayim, Ezra declares, Ki avadim anachnu, we're still servants. And even though we're still serving, we haven't forsaken HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And from his standpoint, he has responded to us, He has in the past shown us favor, shown us benefit. And of course, the reference, as Rashi points out in the Gemara in Megillah, is to the favor HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed us, the benefit He afforded us, the salvation He delivered to us 
through Malchei Paras during the time of the Megillah. This is a very, very complex Pasuk with a lot of layers of meaning. To understand the layers of meaning, you must appreciate the setting of this Pasuk. Ezra has finally returned with a small group of people, very underwhelming. And this is the final return to Eretz Yisrael. Most of the people have stayed behind, and you can't help, and they couldn't help but realize that this was an imperfect redemption. But not only that, but the group that does return is extremely adulterated in terms of pedigree. The first Mishnah of the fourth parak of Kiddushin describes Asara Yuxin Alumi Bavel. There were ten different categories of pedigree. And Ezra had to filter through them and who was a Jew and who wasn't a Jew and who was a Ger and who was an Asufi and who was a Shtuki and who was a Mamzer. All types of questionable pedigree statuses arising from dysfunctional uh, marital situations. But not only that, but at this point, Ezra has been informed by his assistance, by his counsel, that horrifically the Jews have intermarried extensively over the terms of the Gullus, and they still refuse they still refuse to separate or to divorce those foreign wives. And Ezra becomes devastated. This is an Ezra Peretes. When I heard that news, I tore my clothing, I tore my hair out, I sat quiet, I gathered all the people who were committed, we fasted, we stood up from the fast and we confessed to Hashem our sins, our embarrassment. And in that context, he asserts, that even though we're still slaves to Malchei Paras, we haven't forsaken you. We're still committed to you. And you extended chesed to us. Very, very complex. On the one hand, Ezra and his followers, having returned to Yerushalayim, recognize that this redemption is not perfect. And it probably won't be perfect. And it probably won't be messianic. It will be staged. It will be partial. The Gemara Megillah says that had the entire population returned, then it may have been utopian. But it wasn't. And they realized that. And the clearest signal is the fact that everyone's still intermarried. This is not, this is not the narrative of Mashiach. But to reassure himself, himself and to convince everyone around him that this really is a geula. He says, well, there was another point in which our geula wasn't perfect, and it happened a few years ago, and that was the geula of Purim. Because at no point did the Jews reach full sovereignty. No point was a full harmony. It was imperfect. We were still without sovereignty. We were still indebted, subjugated. And now, as they march back to Yerushalayim, there's still, those who've read Sefer Ezra recognize the pleas, the petitions, back to Melech Daryavash, Daryavash II, begging him to allow them to rebuild the base of Mekdash, begging him to allow them to dispatch Jews back to Yerushalayim, begging him to offer monies and the original Kalim of the Mikdash. 
So ironically, at some level, Megillas Esther and the Nase of Purim reminds the Jews that there is Geula, even if it isn't complete, even if it doesn't carry full sovereignty, even to Ezra, if they're still intermarried with their Gentile wives, doesn't make it non-redemptive, just means they have to try harder. And it's both reassuring as well as motivating. This is redemption. So maybe they didn't separate themselves from their wives because they just couldn't wrap their heads around the notion that it was redemptive and it was divine. And as it was trying to convince them, this is really Yad Hashem. So what that we are other people's generosity and other people's authority and other people's uh, whims. But it's still Yad Hashem as it was in Shushan. It is now in Yerushalayim. And this is the way to approach redemption, to approach Geulah, to approach Binyam Beis HaMikdash. So at some level, it's comforting by the very fact that Vayet Aleinu Chesed, Lefnei Malchei Paras, that it was the empire of Paras which was the instrument, and we still remain slaves, Ki Avadim Anachnu Uvavduseinu, Lo Azavanu. We're still slaves, and we were slaves, not in the Mitzrayim sense of bondage and heavy labor. But in the sense of the Gemara employs in Megillah Daf Yudalit by questioning why we don't recite Hallel on Purim. And one answer the Gemara responds is Akati Avdi Even after the miracle, we still didn't achieve Fulgul in the sense which we did in Mitzrayim. And it's not the point of Hallel. Even on Hanukkah we restored sovereignty, but on Purim we were without sovereignty. And. This is a reassuring as well as a motivating factor. And it's not just the similarity between what happened in Shushan. Again, it's hard to know historically when exactly the Nesporim was. Even in Chazal, it occurs sometimes in that 18-year period between, at least as Chazal have it, between when the Beis HaMikdash's foundations were first rebuilt and, and when they came back in, with Ezra. Modern archaeology has different dating, modern history, history has different dating schemes, but it clearly happens after the foundations of the Mikdash were began and were halted, and before Ezra returns. The miracle of Purim occurs right in that little niche. But it wasn't just the lack of full redemption that was important for Ezra, but it was so many events which occurred when Ezra returns with his group were so reminiscent of the events which occurred in Shushan, you couldn't help but realize that the Nase of Purim was a template itself, was a model for Ezra's return. It's almost as if Hashem was telling Am Yisrael prophetically, remember there's no prophecy in the Megillah, because it's a non-prophetic pause, but Kodesh Baruch Hu is, is informing Am Yisrael, these are the events that will help you get back to Eretz Yisrael, recognize that they're Yad Hashem. So, for example, when Ezra and his party plead with Malach Daryavash to allow the rebuilding of the Mikdash against all of their political opponents and the local governors, he says, go look back in the old records, in the Sefer Zichronos, and you'll find an old letter about Karish's promise. Well, which other Geula happened by taking a look at an old letter, in an old book which was recorded. That's exactly what happens in Mikhailas Esther. Because it was written long ago and long ago forgotten that Mordechai had informed on the two conspirators. And that without question resonated to people. 
finding an old recording of favors promised and favors due. What happens when Melech Daryabash II in Ezra Perak Vav announces that all those who oppose the Jewish march into Israel, I command that anyone who stands in front of the Jews obstructing their march and obstructing their rebuilding the base of Mikdash, you know what his punishment is? Listen to this. I'll read it in Aramaic for effect. Yitnesach ah min baisei, this is Aramaic, Ezra Perak Vav is written in Aramaic, a piece of wood should be dislodged from his house, uzekif yismeche alohi, and he should be hung on that large piece of wood, ubaisi nevalu yisaved aldina, and you should destroy his entire house. Well, which other enemy of the Jewish people was hung on a tree while his house was, in this case, depleted and handed to others? It was exactly, exactly what happened to Haman. And if you're a Jew who's struggling to make sense of an imperfect redemption, to see, is this really something HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, is driving and propelling? And, and the events in Shushan clearly were. And then you see those same events occur three, four, five, six years later. It's too eerie. It's too similar. When they're passing through the land of Israel, how do they get through? How do they convince? How do they rally all the locals? So, this is an Ezra Parakhas Pasuk Lamid Vav, Vayitnu Ez Daseha Melech. They pass over the letters of the king, Lachashdarpene Hamelech, Upachos, Tidachashdarpenim and the Pachos. Oh, wait a second. Which other letters were passed on to which other Achashdarpenim and Pachos, local governors and letter carriers? And I discussed the letters in a different installment of the series. And listen to this passage. It's in Parakhas, the end of Lamid Vav of Ezra. Uvenisu Es Ha'am. And they were celebrating the Jews as they marched to Yushalayim. Remember the Pasuk in the Megillah? They were menasim esayudim. They were elevating the Jews. The same events, the same tools, same apparatus, and also the same form of recovery. Ezra, whenever he feels like he has to create a change and a rally and a level of energy, he fasts. He declares fasts in the section I read before, but it's not the only fast he declares, but certainly one of the most prominent ones. In Ezra Perak Tess, once he realizes that all the Jews are still intermarried, he's fasting with everyone. Who else fasted? Who else created a, a religious surge? Again and again, as they're struggling in Eretz Yisrael, on the way to Eretz Yisrael, with their opponents, with their enemies, within themselves, within their own conviction and determination, they're looking back to the events in Shushan and remembering that their template for imperfect gula, and that's precisely why, precisely why, Rav Dimi Bar Yitzchak cites this pasuk in Ezra, Perikdes, because it so succinctly captures avadim anachna. We're still avadim. We're still subjugated by Paras. And even though we're still Avadim, Hashem hasn't forsaken us. But not forsaking us doesn't mean He's liberated us. Within our subjugation, within our, so to speak, slavery, lack of autonomy, we're still stuck in a geopolitical system which isn't ours, but it doesn't make it less redemptive.
This is Rifdimi's slant on Regulus Esther. And this is part seven of the eight-part series. This is part eight of an eight-part series discussing the various psukim in Tanakh, which Chazal would recite before teaching Megillah Sester, in an attempt to draw some of the hidden themes of the Megillah. Um, this is the last shear, and in many of the shear, I try to demonstrate some of the themes which aren't often spoken about, the historical context, the cultural challenges, the way that this served as a summary of the Chorban and as a forerunner of future Chorbanos, the way that it encouraged people to realize that they were part of a Gula process which had begun to unfold in Yerushalayim, which was stalled right when the Nase of Purim occurred. Rabbi Masna, and it's quoted by the Gemara in Megillah Yud Aleph, Rabbi Masna would begin his discussion of Megillah Esther by citing a Pasuk in Veshanan. Ki mi goy gadol, who is like our nation, who is so great as the Jewish people, which has a God so close to them, in this case it's interesting, a love in the singular, to this nation, a love, as Hashem is close to us whenever we call Him out, whenever we approach Him. Now, the word has general connotations when we seek His relationship, when we look for His presence, that could be expressed in mitzvah performance, in Torah, in national calling, in korbanos. But literally, the phrase, Likroas Hashem, was always seen by Chazal as a phrase or a, a, a synonym for davening. Dirshuas Hashem bihi karov. And on Atanis, we read Yeshaya Nunhei, from which that Pasuk is taken, and we increment our tefillos as part of the Tanis. So even though this Pasuk speaks about a general relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and its people, certainly in Chazal's world, the notion of Bechol Kar love was a direct reference to Tzvila. And by inserting this Pasuk into his Megillus Esther curriculum from the Eschanan, Rabbi Masna was highlighting the significance of Tzvila within the story of Megillus Esther. Now, it's obvious on a certain level, when Mordechai pleads with Esther to, as we would say, rally the troops in fast three days, the Pasuk doesn't overtly mention Tefillah, but keep in mind, there's not much about Megillus Esther which is overt or specific or explicit. But it's clear that if there's a fast being expected or being instituted, then it probably also demands Tefillah. We don't directly see the Tefillah. But the importance of tefillah in responding is something far beyond the, so to speak, limited context of this miracle. I try to always stretch your imagination and your appreciation of the Megillah beyond the limited parochial details, not that they were insignificant details, but of the specific targeted genocide which HaKadosh Baruch Hu relieved us from. First of all, this was a continuing battle in the never-ending saga between Yaakov and Esav, between Yisrael and Amalek, between Shaul and Agag, and now between Haman and Mordechai, Shaul's grandson from the family of Binyamin. 
Yoshua coming also from Rachel's family, between the family of Rachel and the family of Esav, or Amalek. And this was a never-ending saga of Amalek trying to defend or recapture his grandfather's lost Bechora, or Bracha. And you can't understand Megillah's Esther unless you read Parshas Toldos, because it goes back to Parshas Toldos on that timeline. And in Parshas Toldos, Yitzchak reminds history, Hakol, Kol, Yaakov, Vehayadayim, Yedei Esav. That Yaakov's strength lies in his voice, not in his military might. And in his voice and his ability to call out HaKadosh Baruch Hu Bechol love to David and to change his reality. That Davening really changes the will of Hashem. And that notion that Davening can actually change the divine will as incredibly, as immensely preposterous as it sounds. Why should we be able to change Hashem's will? was in fact first demonstrated by Yaakov, the Kol Kol Yaakov in Parshas Vayetze, because Avraham's Lashon of Tefillah is Amida, Yitzchak's Lashon of Tefillah is Lasuach, and each of them capture various layers of Tefillah, but Yaakov's voice of Tefillah is Vayifka Bamakom, and the word Lifgoa means to convince, to change, or to physically change, through a Pigua, Mifagea, Pigi Asan, Mishnan Bavakama, Pigi Asan Ra, but the word lifgah means to change. Literally means that Yaakov changed Hashem's will because it was unclear what his future would be. Hashem knew, of course, what Yaakov would do and how he would daven, but it's very much dependent. The outcome of Yaakov's future was very much dependent upon the choices he took. He davened HaKadosh Baruch when he literally altered Hashem's will. And in the battle with Amalek, it was apparent that the battle wasn't merely being won or being uh, tussled or implemented on the battlefield, but Moshe stood up top the mountain, when he raised his hands, Am Yisrael would, would become more triumphant and vanquish Amalek, and the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah asked, Moshe's hands really determined the fate of war. And the answer the Mishnah gives in Rosh Hashanah calls Man Yisrael Mishabdim Libam Lashamayim. When Am Yisrael would see Moshe's hands raised up in Tefillah, Vayhiadav Emuna in Tefillah, Ad Bo Hashemesh, then they would daven, or they would at least symbolically raise their own hearts in Tefillah, supplicating Akadosh Baruch Hu for victory, and their own victory would be more immediate and pending. So Yaakov's battle with Esav is always a dual battle, a battle on the battlefield and a battle of tefillah, of davening. And as much as we know the outcome of the Nase of Purim, and we celebrate it each year in hindsight, Chazal say there was very much an uncertain, fluid moment that Am Yisrael's future could have extinguished, could have ended, could have terminated. There was a debate in Shemayim. It wasn't clear what the outcome would be, and Moshe Mordechai and Esther rally the troops and begin their davening. So Rabbi Masna wanted to highlight the role of davening, the role of tefillah and Megillah Esther by introducing this Pasuk that HaKadosh Baruch Hu literally responds to our tefillahs, to our attempts to draw closer to him. But the importance of davening at this moment in Megillah Esther was far beyond the general significance of davening and the general significance of davening within the struggle between Yaakov and Esav. The fascinating, fascinating part of the slichos we read this morning 
this year is being recorded on Tanis Esther, and in the first slicha, you see the davening unfolding. Marasha, which is another phrase for Israel, Shamam Marasha v'atilbash begdeh almenus. This is metaphorically the land of Israel put on its clothing of widow, of its widow clothing. To, it was so sad that the Jewish people were imperiled. The slicha continues. Tishbi sam ezar sak v'masnav tachboshes Eliyahu and Shemayim began to wear sackcloth to daven. Miher v'hodia yishene machpel, and they all Eliyahu and the land of Israel tried to awaken the slumberers of Me'arasa Machpelah, the three Avos, that they should daven. Nachatz l'ro'eh, and they turned to Moshe, Malachan nirdam l'his maybe Moshe, maybe Yaakov, why are you sleeping, get up and daven, kum, kirel elokecha, go daven to Hashem, phrases lifted out of Sefer Yonah. And then a very, very interesting phrase, mi ninveh lamdu, they studied ninveh, li'achar gzerah, after Xer has already been posed, Ka'as Lahafer, anger can be removed. Ben Kish, Mordechai, he Kish Dalsel's base, a safer, was knocking on the doors of the schools of the base matters. Vayechas Sak, he put on a sackcloth, Vayeshev al Hafer, and he sits on ashes, and he encourages people to fast three days. Bikol Yaakov, Lachalosh, Yidei Azpanim, with the voice of Yaakov to weaken Esav's troops, Haman's troops. So this is a very, very lovely slicha, very lovely um, piyot. And it describes the classic scene, which we recite in slichas before Shana as well. Part of the kinos as well, that when we daven, it's not just ourselves, but our forefathers who rail in heaven on our behalf and try to ad- uh, advance our own platforms and our own tefillos. And Eliyahu and Am Yisrael awaken the Avos and perhaps awaken Moshe Rabbeinu and Esim to daven and and then this has ripple effect on the terrestrial people who should be davening, Mordechai and Esther. But all of a sudden, the davening is spurred, not just by the crisis and not just by the recognition that Elio and the Avos are davening in Shemayim, but because they study Ninveh. What does it mean they study Ninveh? Well, we know what it means they study Ninveh. Ninveh is a template, is a model, is a precedent for people who can alter a terrible gzera, feratas veinu, but it's also an embarrassing precedent, and one which has to be rectified. It's a very famous Abar Benel in the beginning of Sefer Yonah. Famous question, why did Yonah disobey HaKadosh Baruch Hu's instructions? He's a Navi. Navim normally adhere to the Rabboni Shalom's demands, and this Navi rebels, disobeys. The Abar Benel says something shocking, so... Intriguing, but it's shocking. That Elian Yonah refused to go to Ninveh because he understood that they would respond, that they would daven. And it would embarrass another nation that had had ample warnings about the pending crisis, and not once do we see any response of Tshuva or Tvila. There's such obstinacy and intransigence and inflexibility, and of course the Jewish people. So many Nevi'im come to warn them. They just don't listen. There's no Tshuva, there's no Tvila. And the second that Ninveh gets one warning shot from a Navi, foreign Navi, Jewish Navi, they respond enthusiastically and energetically. And Yonah, so to speak, prioritizes his love for his people over his love for Hashem. It's an interesting read on Sefer Yonah. But for our purposes, it just reminds us that 
Am Yisrael never davened. There's no sign of tefillah or of tshuva. And here we are, 70 years later, and it's the first national tshuva and tefillah. And it is a tikkun, it is a repair of so many years of quiet, so many years of apathy, so many years without tefillah. So it's not just important because it continues the legacy of tefillah of Mordechai and of Yaakov and of Shaul and of Yehoshua and of Moshe, but because it reminds people of the power of tefillah even when they thought it may have been lost because of the lack of Beis HaMikdash and the lack of Korbanos of the Beis HaTfilah, Ki Beisi Beis Tfilah, Yikare L'chal Ha'amim. It repairs. And when the person who wrote the Slicha we recited this morning talks about Mordechai and Esther studying Ninveh's experience and learning from it, it's Ninveh happens towards the end of the first Beis HaMikdash. Yonah lives towards the end of the first Beis HaMikdash. And here we are. And it's crucial to tether the Nasif Purim to the Gullus experience of the first base on Mikdash. Finally, finally, it's not really the first tefillah because Daniel davens. And in Daniel's davening, he recognizes the lack of tefillah and he's embarrassed and he looks back on the lack of tefillah during the Chorban or during the events leading to the Chorban and, and he produces a confessional. And Daniel actually gets into trouble for davening. Daniel becomes a a, a person associated with davening, and that's why he's persecuted. And of course, Daniel is part of the Megillah's Esther story on many, many levels. Hasach, person who informs Haman, um, or Harvona, excuse me, who informs Hashverosh, um, excuse me, too many people about the tree, according to Chazal, is really Daniel, and it's important to bring Daniel into the Esther story because Daniel started the returned from Gullus, he went right into Gullus, and he refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar's culture. Nebuchadnezzar saw him as a potential leader of the next generation and wanted to raise him to be a leader and wanted to feed him food and wine in the king's courtyard. And Daniel refused and therefore smuggled in seeds that he could live by, not because the food wasn't kosher, because he just didn't want to, to eviscerate his own culture by eating Babylonian food. And that's really the source of Hamantashin, of Hosnei Amman. The original Hamantashin were poppy seeds to remind ourselves of Daniel's smuggled seeds. And then, of course, people changed the filling of Hamantashin or of Hosnei Amman. So Daniel is part of Megillus Esther. Chazal struggle almost to bring him into Megillus Esther, in part because he didn't submit to the party of the Ruchadnezar and lose his own cultural identity, whereas the Jews in, in Shushan did until they recovered and fasted and in part because Daniel is a, this icon of tefillah. So much of our tachnon comes from Daniel's tefillah. If you just look at your sitter, the long tachnon especially, which you say on Monday and Thursday, is lifted right out of, say, for Daniel, parts of Daniel, parts of Ezra, a little bit of Divri Hayamim. So it was important for the Jewish people to find their voice, to finally perform tshuva, to finally fast, to finally perform tefillah, to study Ninveh, to remember how embarrassing it was that the Jewish people never davened to remind themselves that even without the base Hamikdash they can Davin Bechol Koreno I love and to start the legacy of Davening. And what's exciting about Purim, and I'm always trying to stretch Purim backwards and forwards for you, is that somehow the power of Tefillah which is unleashed in in Shushan is not just a repair of the lack of Tefillah previously during the first base Hamikdash. 
It doesn't just, of course, help alleviate the genocidal crisis. It doesn't only inspire the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's to continue their tefillah, and Ezra's tefillah is clearly, it's unclear when Daniel's tefillah takes place, but Ezra's tefillah clearly takes place after Purim, the great tefillah that, that he issues when he gets back to Eretz Yisrael. But in some ways, the tefillah, the kol kol Yaakov, the kol kareinu we love during the Esther story, fuels an explosion, the golden period of tefillah. Because at the first stages of the second base Hamikdash, right after the miracle of Purim, the Anshe Knesses Hagidola, men of the great assembly, institutionalized tefillah. And tefillah becomes a more central part of the religious experience. Remember, in the first base Hamikdash, Korban is dominated. Obviously, people Davin, Chana Davins, other people Davin, Shlomo Hamelech recognizes that this will be a house of davening, but we certainly see an institutionalization of tefillah during the Ezra Knesset They developed the Nusach tefillah, which we daven this day. They established certain times of tefillah, Chazal Lachin, the Halachas of tefillah. So Purim is important, not just because it reminds us of the power of tefillah and the function of tefillah within the Yaakov Amalek struggle, and not only because it rectifies the absence of tefillah in the first base of Mikdash, but because it pretty much serves as a precursor to the great period, the golden period, in which tefillah develops its shape, its form, and its centrality within our own Avodah Hashem. Achag Purim Sameach.